Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. When I was a kid, there used to be a TV commercial for this series of animal videos you could order that were basically nothing but killing and sex. The tagline was, find out why we call them animals. Wait a minute, I used to think. That's not why we call them animals. Also, we're animals too, aren't we? What exactly are you trying to say? That video series was a cynical cash grab, but it's not too far removed from how science has approached animal research with some very recent exceptions. Generosity, empathy, happiness, reconciliation. These rich emotions and pro-social behaviors were for humans. The animal kingdom was about dominance, survival, and the right to reproduce. Hey, it was a jungle out there. My guest today, primatologist Franz de Waal, has spent decades gathering field and laboratory evidence that the line between humans and the rest of the animal kingdom is very blurry indeed, and that emotions are the deep connective tissue across species. His wonderful new book, Mama's Last Hug, will help you find out why they call us animals. Welcome to Think Again, Franz. Thank you. First of all, and probably most important, I need to ask your advice on taking care of fish. Oh yeah, you have fish? I have some fish and they just die. Yeah, maybe you're feeding them too much. Maybe I am. All my life, since I was <laughs> six, I've had aquariums. I've never been without one. As a student, I had it. I've always had tropical fish, or when I was young, I had freshwater fish just that I took in Holland that I, I caught myself, basically. And if I can't stop algae from growing. Mm, you, may, you may be overfeeding Maybe I'm fish. overfeeding them. So if you feed fish too much, then there's food that they don't eat, and that food comes on the, on the floor, and it starts rotting, and <laughs> all sorts of bad things are going to happen. So, so when I <laughs> leave my home, I always leave very clear instructions. I, I leave quantities of food for the person who takes care, because I know that people try to overfeed fish. They oh, okay. You say, actually bind up little yeah, they, they, they packets. Think, so. They think giving more is better, as you always think, you know, but that's not necessarily true. Well, because <laughs> humans are generous. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or we have the potential for generosity. Yeah, 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 yeah. So somebody could read your work, or at least just, I don't know, read the blurb of your mm -hmm. work and get the mistaken impression that you're trying to present this kind of warm, fuzzy view of animals. Uh -huh you know, this kind of romantic view that erases competition, that erases violence and all that. Mm -hmm. That's not what's going on, though, at all. No, no, no. I'm, I'm a biologist, and, and I know that animals can also kill each other. And actually, <laughs> I got interested in the study of reconciliation, partly because of a killing among my chimpanzees. Uh, and, and so I had discovered that chimpanzees, they kiss and embrace each other after fights. And so when one of our chimps, chimps got killed, I all of a sudden realized that if that mechanism fails they can be extremely nasty to each other. And that gave me the decision to start focusing more on the conflict resolution skills of animals. And I studied it in monkeys and bonobos and chimpanzees. And so, yes, I'm fully aware of all the aggressiveness. And, and, and there would actually be no way of studying peacemaking if if there was no fights, because oh, right, right, then right. peacemaking would make no sense. So I'm actually very uh, aware of that. and. And, and interested in that, but when I was a student, everything turned around aggression. Everyone was studying aggressive behavior because Lawrence had written a book about that. So this we, is Conrad Lawrence. Okay. Uh, L O R E N Z, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. An, an Austrian 
etologist, very famous. He had wrote, written a book on aggression, and he said, we humans, we have an aggressive instinct. Actually, his message was not very well received because he, had, he was an Austrian who had served in the German army, and this was right after World War II. Right. <laughs> and people didn't want to hear from uh, a German sympathizer that actually aggression is, is an instinct that we cannot get rid of. So, so it became extremely controversial. But, and everyone <laughs> was studying aggressive behavior in rats and children and, and humans. And I had the same task, but I discovered that actually there's, there's another side to the conflict, which is that the animals try to prevent conflict and try to ameliorate relationships afterwards. And that's the thing I got interested in. And so these ideas like this, that humans have an aggressive instinct or Richard Dawkins with the selfish gene, mm -hmm. sends science kind of running, scurrying off in some direction, which yeah. has some truth to it, but just isn't the whole story. Yeah. So the, the selfish gene by itself is not a bad idea because genes promote themselves in a way because they produce traits that may help the reproduction of the individual and so then the gene perpetuates. So, so, so that by itself is not such a bad idea but selfishness is a psychological term. Right. And so genes cannot be selfish. Genes can be self-promoting but selfishness is a psychological characteristic. And so from the beginning that put us on the wrong foot, so to speak. And many people started to confuse selfish genes with selfish psychology. Right. And so this so saying that humans are 100% selfish, which they really aren't. So um, that whole discussion in the 70s <laughs> and 80s right. got stuck, I think. And then we got interested actually in cooperation. And I got very interested in cooperation. And now we live in a very different time. And now we know that humans, but also some other species, their initial tendency is, is pro-social. So if you bring humans in a brain scanner, for example, and you give them a task where they can cooperate with you or compete with you, right. they prefer cooperation. Th that's their first impulse is cooperation. Only if you have been nasty to them or has have maltreated them or unfriendly to them, they're going to go for the selfish option. Okay. So we have a natural tendency to be trusting and cooperative, and the same can be said of other species that are social. And so this whole selfish picture that we have of ourselves is actually wrong, I think. <laughs> and you talk about how bonobos, which are less studied than, than mm -hmm. chimps, that there's a difference there that chimps are, tend to be xenophobic, whereas yeah, yeah. bonobos are xenophilic. Humans, uh, would you say, are both uh, somewhere in the middle? I mean, uh, I think humans can be both. They yeah. can be both. And there has been a tendency to emphasize the xenophobic tendencies of humans. And of course, we live in a time where there's a lot of tensions between racial groups. Sure. It's almost as if the tensions that we used to have between nations have now shifted to within nations between different... Identity groups. Yeah, so, yeah. so we, we have shifted the conflict there. And we clearly have a lot of potential for xenophobia. But xenophobia can also be promoted culturally or politically. You can have political leaders who promote it. Uh, you can have religions who promote it. And so uh, I think it's a flexible characteristic. And uh, there's a lot of evidence, for example, from the anthropologists that hunter-gatherer cultures are not nearly as xenophobic as people would like them make, make them out to be because they have lots of networks and connections outside of their group. So people travel through the territories right. of others, they trade with each other, they marry with each other, they have lovers in other places. And so um, this whole idea that we are naturally inherently xenophobic, uh, I'm not 100% on board with that. Uh, let's talk a bit about animal emotions or about emotions more generally. You make this distinction in the book that is very important and that I know 95% understand between uh -huh. emotions and feelings. 
you say emotions are objectively, you know, mm-hmm. measurable and visible in facial expressions, and I guess what's happening in the brain and galvanic mm-hmm. skin response and hair standing up, whereas feelings are subjective. Feelings are private states, and so we we talk about our feelings. I cannot see your feelings, right? And I cannot even feel your feelings. So you may say that you're happy, but who knows? Uh, mm-hmm. Can I trust that? Maybe a month later, you divorced from your wife and <laughs> and turns out you were not so happy, maybe. So people lie all the time about their feelings, and I'm so to, happy. To other people and to themselves, yeah, right? <laughs> to themselves also, yeah. I'm happy to work with animals who cannot describe their feelings, and so I have to guess them. But I think human emotion research is not in a very different place because people think that we know our feelings, but I'm not 100% sure how, how well we know our mm. own feelings and how well we communicate our feelings because we very often struggle to describe our feelings it's very difficult actually to get to know them well so anyway i i study the emotions the emotions live somewhere between the mind and the body they always involve the body you wouldn't call yourself emotional if there's absolutely no effect on your body so your heart rate goes up your blood pressure your skin conductance and your breathing your your voice changes that's why you can talk to someone on the phone and hear and what kind of mood they are mm-hmm. and the voice is, is a reflection of the body so it's all reflected in the body and, and mostly the face so the face is very important and emotion research in humans started with the face Darwin started with the face I start my book with the face the face is where we see the emotions most clearly and there was a time of course when people said well uh, we humans have a ton of facial expressions and so we must have uh, very rich emotions compared to other animals because we have so many more muscles in the face but recently five years ago people analyzed the faces of chimpanzees uh, post-mortem and found that they had exactly the same number of muscles in the face as we have and so Mm. the chimpanzee is just equally capable of expressing all these shades of emotions that we do so i know paul ekman has done that research on micro expressions in humans and even from your book I know that there was pushback at one point from the kind of cultural relativist camp yeah, that yeah. was basically saying no they're not universal facial expressions of emotion are not in any way universal and then he further researched it and it turned out to be has similar that similar level of detail been done uh, in observing primate facial expressions in humans I would say that uh, there has been not a lot of detailed attention because the way Paul Ekman and others have studied emotions in uh-huh. humans is not so much documenting when we use particular facial expressions like like a real observer would do but just presenting people with pictures and say is this happy or sad gotcha, or right. angry okay and of course if you see a smile you're going to say happy that doesn't mean that a smile is necessarily a happy expression in my opinion because the, the smile can mean many different things and so it was a sort of constrained test that mm. Ekman provided us with but the important part was that he made the point which Darwin I think had already made he made the point very clearly that human facial expressions are universal and are universally understood at least six of them so he he had the six basic emotions which we can see over the whole world now the for me the limiting factor is the six because that means that all the other emotions were secondary Uh, you have primary emotions and secondary emotions and all the others are secondary meaning that they are flexible they're cultural uh, they're present in humans but not in animals but among the secondary emotions we have love and attachment which Uh to me seems such a basic 
important what is the the world going to look like without love and attachment so and love and attachment i think we see in other animals also jealousy is not in there hope is not in there uh, you name it right. the, the basic emotions is a very limited set and so the thinking was that only humans have secondary and basic emotion but animals with animals we only share the basic ones and and so my book is to a large degree explaining that i think all the emotions that you as a human have i can probably find in other species we may apply them a little differently so we the application of the emotion and the circumstances may be a bit different in our species but we share basically all of them this is not to say that humans are the most remarkable beings on the planet by any means, but there's some sort of feedback loop that must be happening between language and emotion that mm -hmm. at least changes, if not the emotions, changes our understanding of them, creates well, something else that you that's, that's, might not have without language. I, yeah, it's possible. Is that, uh, <laughs> You're skeptical. For me, the emotions exist outside of language. Uh. So clearly a, a child who cannot yet talk like a, let's say a one-year-old one child clearly has a whole range of emotions, but they are not expressed in language. And people used to assume that that means also that the child has no feelings because they were very tied to the language feeling side. But I think emotions exist outside of language and language is used to describe your feelings, to describe your emotions, to describe why a certain emotion has affected your decisions. So language is used to communicate about them. And that is a big advantage that we have but I don't think language creates emotions. Mm. I, I'm not convinced of that. Mm -hmm. I talked a long while ago with Antonio Damasio, who mm -hmm. you reference frequently mm -hmm. in the book. And this whole understanding is kind of an important corrective to the Cartesian or Christian split of, mm -hmm. of mind, body, soul, body, whatever, right? To say yeah. that much of what we are, maybe most of it comes up from below in a sense, comes up yeah, from yeah. the body. So that's our body and, for example, the subcortical areas of the brain that Damasio is very interested in, they are the connection with the body. They sort of document what's happening in the body, which is then at some point your consciousness maybe, or maybe not, very often not. So yes, the body is extremely important and we have a tendency in the West to diminish the body. The mind is strong and the, the flesh is weak. <laughs> that, that's the way we look at things and we want to push the body away and especially men. I think men more than women like to push the body away and like to be sort of free-floating minds. And that's why you have men who believe that after death we should freeze their brains right. and then at some point we will upload the brain into a computer uh, because they don't need the body at all. We, we just need the mind and the digital information from the mind and that will make you happy. But I think happiness will not exist without the body. I think the happiness is a visceral emotion probably. And so I'm not sure why people think that they will have happy lives ever after. Not only the whole central nervous system, although that's important, mm -hmm. but also maybe at the cellular level or the gut microbiome or whatever. We don't even yeah, understand. Everything is connected yeah, in yeah, our yeah. body. And to think that the mind is some sort of disconnected thing, that has also been very popular in philosophy. For, for example, the Kantian moral philosophy. I'm very interested in morality. I think morality is very closely tied to the emotions. But the Kantians have, of course, been able to drive a wedge between the two and to say, well, we, we arrive at moral principles by reasoning and logic, basically. So, so to push the body out of the way. And that's why 
they're kind of the Greek philosophers. They looked down on women because women were closer to the body and they didn't want to hear about that. And they had fluctuations over the months, which was also problematic for them. <laughs> and, and, then, and then you have animals, animals even worse because they're, they're very emotional creatures, closely tied to the body. And so there has been this tendency in the West to push the body away, basically, and, and get rid of it. So and in animal research, that kind of manifests in... I did a master's degree in developmental psychology, and I felt very angry at B.F. Skinner all the time. And you have That's a, a good attitude. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and you have a bit of that pushback as well in your book. Oh, I think, I, think, I think he has been a disaster. He has been such a disaster for the study of animal uh, behavior because... He is not biological. He doesn't believe in neuroscience. They asked him towards the end of his life, do you think neuroscience is going to change the study of human behavior? Because this was focused on humans. He didn't think so. He didn't think we needed neuroscience. Uh, he doesn't think about evolution because for him all species are the same. Whether you're an elephant or a mouse, you're ruled by conditioning basically. Uh, whether you have a brain of three kilo like an elephant or a few grams like a mouse, that doesn't matter to him. And so <laughs> he, he is basically a non-biological student of animal behavior. And I don't know why he has remained so popular for so long. And it's now finally, finally we're going to ditch him, I think, and behaviorism. But um, it has taken an enormous amount of effort. I mean, I think the reason he's been so popular for so long, this is my guess, is that from a utilitarian standpoint, some of what he said works. Like you can train something to oh, do absolutely. something. Absolutely. You know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the idea that conditioning is important right, and that right, associative right. learning. Absolutely. It is. You talk to an animal trainer, they will tell you how important. And for human behavior also, I think. So, so the theory he had is not wrong. But if you want to squeeze all human and all animal behavior in that little theory, that's what the problem You're is. You're chopping uh, up, uh, yeah. chopping off a lot of dimensions. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. We could also to talk a bit about what you've observed in terms of startling examples of cooperation, reconciliation, pro-social behavior. The book is full of them. I'm not uh -huh. sure even where the best place to begin is. Although I will, I'm going to start with an anecdote, which is that after reading your book or while reading it, I was in a Korean restaurant. The waiter came over and he was extremely rude to us. He was oh. just like, he told us to keep this glass away from the barbecue fire and the glass was still there when he came back and he said, I told you to keep that away from there because <laughs> blah, 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 right? And so we kind of looked at him and then he walked away. And then a couple minutes later, he came back and was like, would you like some extra soy sauce? Or he basically said something completely unnecessary. And uh -huh. I understood it as a reconciliation This was move. an implicit, but what did I call an implicit reconciliation? You have explicit, <laughs> explicit ones where you apologize and you say, I didn't mean it that way. And you have implicit ones where you bring your colleague a cup of coffee uh, after having insulted him, but you don't talk about the incident. <laughs> yeah. No one has to apologize. Everyone <laughs> saves face. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about some of these amazing examples. I mean, there's the one, I can't remember the chimp's name, but where you taught her to bottle feed. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful place mm -hmm. to begin, perhaps. Yeah, this is a female named Kauf um, who had lost her own babies multiple times because she was not producing enough milk. And each time she went into a deep depression and she cried. It's actually the only chimp I've ever seen that maybe was producing tears, because tears is, is a uniquely human phenomenon. Mm. But she was always rubbing her eyes after uh, having cried for an hour, 
and I never could see tears, but, but the chimp face has a lot of hair and maybe the tears were absorbed and disappeared, but she was always rubbing her eyes. Anyway, she, yeah. she was clearly depressed. And so when at some point a baby became available from another female who had other trouble uh, with raising an offspring, we decided to give that one to Kaif and to train her to bottle feed her baby, that baby. And so uh, we took six weeks, I believe, to train her how to handle the bottle and how to handle the baby. And we did all that through the bars. We kept the baby on our side. She was very interested. She, she was a female who was very interested in offspring. And so at some point, we then put the baby in the straw of her cage and told her that she could have it. And she refused to take it. She, she looked at it and she inspected it. And then she came back to us. And I think that had to do with the fact that among chimpanzees, it's not well regarded to take the baby of somebody else. And okay. so she must have considered that baby ours. Uh, I was with a female caretaker and the two of us, we worked together. And she must have considered it ours and she was not ready to take it. So we kept telling her, take it, take it, take it. And, uh, and at some point she grabbed it and put it on herself and it has never left since. And she was extremely grateful. She fed the baby. She was successful. She later actually also fed her own personal offspring uh, the same way. And from that moment on, because before that time I was sort of neutral to her, uh, but from that moment on I was like a family member. She was always extremely happy to see me and extremely friendly mm. with me, even though her own her baby was maybe sometimes jealous because that happened. <laughs> also, she herself, she was very attracted to me and considered me basically a family member. And so I, I tell that story a little bit about gratitude because I think gratitude is one of these emotions that we can find in animals. And I think I basically changed her life by doing this uh, because she, she had such a hard time with uh, losing her offspring. It speaks to something very important that you point out in the book, which is that you're looking at that and what you're seeing is gratitude. And there's every reason, mm -hmm. given the observable evidence, there's every reason to assume that that is gratitude. Yeah, yeah. Whereas there are some people in science that would take the hard attitude that you must not speculate beyond the exact point of whatever you can prove. But if the wiring is the same, yeah. if the behavior is the same in context, you may not be able to prove it, but what reason yeah. do we have not to hypothesize? If you take that hard line of some of the scientists, then of course it's also hard to prove gratitude in humans. Then there's lots of things in humans that I cannot demonstrate. For example, consciousness <laughs> would be one of them. You can tell me that you're conscious, but you could also be a zombie, for, for all <laughs> I know. You just blab a little bit and you act as a, as a conscious <laughs> being. So to prove these things is nearly impossible. And I always feel that we need to treat humans and other species at the same level. So right. if you're going to say that animals don't have this or don't have that, then I think you need some evidence also. Whereas for animals, you are doing the work of demonstrating these uh -huh. pro-social behaviors, these complex emotions. Humans often want to ignore the fact that we are jockeying for power, that there are, sure. you know, base dominance and yeah. power issues going on. The uh, power drive for me is very obvious in, in many species. Uh, you put uh, some young geese together, they will fight till they have a rank order, and then they will, the rank order will last for, for years among them. You put young kids together in a daycare center, I hear that there's always a battle <laughs> in the beginning, which is probably also to establish a rank order. But we have this taboo on power, and I still remember one time I was invited to, to speak about chimpanzee politics at <laughs> a psychology conference, and I talked about the power motive, and I explained that humans have the same motive. And afterwards, I got such 
such negative uh, comments by some psychologists who would come up to me. They had found the chimpanzee part fascinating, <laughs> but uh, they were not ag in agreement with the human part. And they said, you must like power. As if, as if I was into porno or something <laughs> like that. So you, you must like power. And I said, no, I'm just describing what I think I see. And so I always look in, because I'm a psychology professor, I always look in the social psychology textbooks, what they say about power and dominance, and they just don't occur, or very little, a bit about power abuse maybe. There's very little about it, as if human society exists without power and, mm. and hierarchies. We don't want to hear the sort of Machiavellian angle yeah. on power. We don't want to hear that. So we Machiavelli has a bad name for that reason, because right. he described what he saw and gave some recommendations of how you could be powerful. And no, Machiavelli is very bad, of course. So Machiavelli, Machiavelli is teaching humans how to manipulate, mm -hmm, how to gain, mm -hmm. and how to maintain power. And often, unless this is misattributed to him, I believe that fear is uh -huh. one, of the, one of the main modus operandi. But you also say something interesting with respect to our current president of the United uh -huh, States uh -huh. and the idea of alpha males, mm -hmm. that in primates, generally, the alpha is not just some big bully. Yeah, like, yeah. typically, it's, a, it's about maintaining order, but also maintaining, yeah. like, you know, cohesion. So, so the, the 2016 elections gave us alpha behavior, clearly, because there was a lot of intimidation going on and name-calling and even comparing anatomical traits. And <laughs> right. that was very much alpha display behavior. And then, of course, we got the confrontation between uh, the leader of the pack and a female candidate, where all the rules completely change because men can intimidate each other. We know how to intimidate each other and lower our voice and insult each other and stuff like that. And we take it in stride usually. But towards a woman, that's not very well regarded, that kind of behavior. Right. And so it became a very complex, <laughs> complex task. And, and that second debate between uh, Trump and Clinton is, if, if you watch that, that's su such a weird debate in terms of the body language. because The one where he's behind her, yeah, he's, looming he's, over he's her. He's clearly sort of angry <laughs> and ready to pounce, but he knows that if he does one of these things, it's not going to end very well. And she is, of course, she, she said also in later interviews, she was quite frightened of having him so close behind her. So, so from body language perspective, that was the strangest thing I've ever seen. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, alpha male behavior is is very visible in, in that context of the election. But then afterwards, uh, after uh, Trump was elected, uh, I was looking for that kind of unifying presence, mm. which in mm. a real alpha male unifies the nation, uh, solves conflicts. And that part, I think, is largely missing. So the ugliness, the stuff we don't really want to look at in power is often happening in the context of establishing power it's it's about it's about gaining power once the rank is established or status is it rather i forget there's a difference once you but, have a high status yeah once you have a high you're, you're at alpha then you have sort of two options in chimpanzees also you have two kinds of alpha males you have the bullies who terrorize everybody and everyone is afraid of them mm -hmm. and they can be very powerful 
but they're often kicked out at some point. Because since they are bullies, the group is basically waiting for a challenger. And then if the challenger comes along, they throw their weight behind the challenger because they don't like these bullies. It's not a very safe environment in which to raise your, your babies, right? If the, yeah, so, it, where so you the, have a bully. Yeah, so the female, the female chimps, they have different interests. And their interest is to have a safe environment that is stable. And so if you have an alpha male, the typical alpha male is actually a leader and a unifier who stops fights in the group and consoles parties. If you have that kind of leader, that's better for the females because um, that's the sort of leader that they can raise their offspring in the group. If the males are always fighting, because fighting males, the problem is, and that's in maybe human society also, they sometimes harm women and they harm kids. In the context of those power grabs, we do see murder. That's something you talk about in the book. Yeah. Chimps acting in a coordinated fashion to murder yeah. and castrate a rival, for example. Yeah, that's typically chimps. Uh, the bonobos don't do any of that. Bonobos equally close to us as the chimp, but doesn't do any of that. But chimps can be vicious. They're vicious between groups. We have a long record of fights between groups of chimps where the males kill each other between groups but sometimes they also do so within the group and that's really terrible that they're capable of that there's one incident that i myself witnessed but in the field we have also quite a few incidents now i hope that there will be a lot more research into bonobos than there has been is that uh -huh. increasing is that picking up speed well it has stopped for 10 years because of the wars in the drc the democratic republic of the congo uh -huh. which is the big congo and that country has never been really stable. It has now uh, had new elections and it has a new president. And so uh, I think the, the research will continue and there is increased research on the bonobos. So for example, one of the findings that I found exciting is the Japanese primatologists, they have found that the female bonobos, the main moment that they help each other is when they are harassed by males. And so the, the females don't do an enormous amount of things together, I think, an enormous amount of cooperation. But as soon as a male is obnoxious to a certain female, <laughs> she has a certain uh, vocalization, and the rest comes over and chases the male off and may punish the male also. Um, but certainly, the females have that solidarity thing completely down and are very good at that. In the context of that female cooperation, you did an interesting thing where you were tracing, basically, you were talking about disgust, right? Uh -huh. And how there's been a lot of research into disgust and sort of the primal origins of disgust, but how disgust then segues into kind of morality. Yeah, yeah. The reason some psychologists of late, of the last 10 years or so, have been saying that disgust is a hum human emotion, a uniquely human emotion, is because they connect it with uh, the disgust that we have for moral acts. Like if you meet someone who scams you, for example, who on the internet says he has cancer and he gets a lot of money and then it turns out he has no cancer, we are disgusted by these or, people. Or people in California who are paying college admissions counseling yeah, to, yeah. Uh, get their kids We're disgusted, <laughs> so we can be morally disgusted. But in the meantime, these psychologists, when they started claiming that disgust is a unique human emotion, they, they have forgotten that disgust has a very simple origin that we see in many, many species. Many species need to be disgusted by certain things like contaminants or parasites or feces or whatever. They need to be disgusted because it's not good for them to ingest it. Sure. And so we have a disgust response in many, many animals. And 
and uh, we have a disgust face. We humans have a disgust face, but it looks very similar to the chimpanzee disgust face. The disgust is activated in the same part of the brain, so it's in the insula. And there's, for example, experiments that were done in Italy with macaques, where if you activate the insula while they're chewing food that they are enjoying, let's say peanuts, they're chewing a peanut, mm. you stimulate the insula and immediately they spit it out. Because uh, the insula creates disgust. Do they and remember it? Do they then not want the peanut again in the future? No, I don't think they remember okay, it. Yeah. And in humans also, if you put humans in a brain scanner and you show them dirty pictures, the things that they don't want to see, it, that activates the insula. And so it, it is the same brain part, it's the same expression, it's the same. And so disgust is a very old emotion. Some, sure. pe some people say it's the first emotion. And so uh, I don't know why some psychologists have all of a sudden tried to elevate it to something special. But then mm -hmm. it sort of evolves or manifests mm -hmm. in greater complexity in situations like the female bonobos coming together to run the bad guy out of town <laughs> or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the, <laughs> actually, I, I would not even exclude moral disgust in primates because there are experiments that were done in Japan with capuchin monkeys where you show capuchin monkeys humans interacting. You put, for example, three people in front of them and the person in the middle needs help to open some sort of container. Turns to one of them and that individual helps. Turns to the other, the other one turns away and, and doesn't want to help. Mm -hmm. And then you ask the monkeys, who do you want to interact with? And they like to interact with the individual who was helpful and not with the individual who was not helpful. Mm -hmm. That gets us very close to a certain revulsion that they may, so there may be moral disgust even in the monkey. Right. So I would not exclude that, but I would say disgust is a very old emotion. We humans may have transformed it into other applications like the moral domain that, or the political domain. That's very well possible, but that doesn't make it a different emotion. The emotion is still the same. Well, I think that this is as good a time as any to transition to a totally different direction, which okay. is the second part of the show. We're going to watch surprise short clips, video clips of past interviews from Big Think. I mm -hmm. have not seen them. Franz has not seen them. And we will see if the conversation goes somewhere interesting okay. from there. Okay. This clip is David Wallace Wells, and it's called What Life Will Be Like Once Earth Passes the Four Degrees Celsius Threshold. When we talk about worst case scenarios, there are a couple of different factors at play. One is what humans do. This is the most important factor. Um, will we change course? Will we continue to burn coal? Will we continue to produce fossil fuel emissions? Um, the UN says that the track we're on now, the trajectory we're on now, is likely to take us to about 4.3 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century if we don't change course. 4.3 degrees would mean $600 trillion in global climate damages. That's double all the wealth that exists in the world today. It would mean parts of the world could be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. It would mean more than double all the war, more than double the warfare that we see today. And the impacts would be in our economic activity, it would be in flooding and um, the refugee crisis. There are so many impacts that we have, um, we have not really been able to think clearly about because all of us are so reluctant to consider these horrifying outcomes. But the fact that they are horrifying should not make us turn away. It should make us focus on them more intently. We all have all of these psychological reflexes that make us reluctant to consider horrible possibilities. And for that reason, it's more important for us to take seriously the science because we need to fight against those impulses to do better planning, to take more aggressive action than we would if we allowed ourselves to slip back into complacency. But there's worse, there are cases that are 
worse than 4.3 degrees. There are what are called feedback loops in the climate system that could conceivably accelerate warming beyond what human action does. So there's what's called the albedo effect, which is a little complicated to explain, but sunlight is reflected back into the outer space by any surface that's white. That's why when you wear a white shirt, you're cooler than if you wear a black shirt in the, sun, in the summer. Um, the less Arctic ice there is, the less reflective white ice there is at the top of the planet. That means more sunlight is being absorbed, which means that more warming would take place. So as Arctic ice melts, the planet's ability to reflect solar um, energy back into space would diminish and warming would accelerate. There is frozen in the Arctic permafrost a lot of methane, or a lot of, I should say, a lot of carbon, which could be released into the atmosphere as methane if that permafrost melts. Methane is, depending on how you count, at least 30 and perhaps 80 times as powerful a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. And there is enough carbon in that permafrost um, to double the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere that we have today. If that were released, it could accelerate warming by a couple of degrees all on its own. There are many more feedback loops like this. Just this past week, there was a study about cloud formation. If we get to about 1,200 parts per million of carbon, which is much higher than we are today at about 410, but it's conceivable early next century, we would completely disrupt the planet system for, um, for cloud formation. And that impact alone, scientists say in the study, would add eight degrees Celsius of warming to the system. So we'd probably be at already four and a half or five degrees by then, and we could immediately be brought to 12 and a half or 13 degrees Celsius. And that really would make much of the planet literally uninhabitable. Not just the equatorial band, not just the tropics, but there'd be places in the mid-latitudes that would just be too hot to live. And we have not really begun to think about those possibilities. This is the world that we're entering into now, at just 1.1 degrees, but the whole range of um, possibilities stretches before us. And even the quite optimistic outcomes are horrifying. Two degrees is genocide, the island nations of the world say. Four degrees is at least twice as bad, depending on how you count. And there are possibilities north of four degrees, um, which are even scarier because it would mean that the climate system had escaped human control. Wow, that's a, quite a <laughs> negative picture here. It is indeed. Scary. I sometimes think, or I often think, that humans aren't very good at, we should be better than we are at holding in our mind probabilistic yeah, yeah. paths of reasoning. Of <clears throat> I have a 11-year-old son, and he'll be doing something that is incredibly dangerous, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he's not a reckless fellow, but he'll do things mm -hmm. that are very dangerous. And I'll say to him, if you do that, this could happen. And he'll often say, yeah, but it didn't happen. It never happened to me yet. People sometimes ask me, why is it important, which I do in my books, to emphasize the connection between humans and animals? What, what do we gain from that? And there are several answers to it, but one of them is that we have for too long, we have thought that we are sort of independent of nature. And uh, I call that anthropodenial, is that we deny that we are animals, we deny that we are mm. similar to other species. It, it also seems like an extension of the denial of the connection between mind and body, you know, yeah, like a, a yeah. different, a metaphorical extension. Yeah, of yeah, the... yeah, we are sort of, <laughs> we are made by God and we're independent of nature and we are the masters over nature, we are domineering and we are the boss over the earth. And so we have lost this feeling that we are part of nature 
and that we need to get along with nature. And this whole climate crisis has come about to a large degree, I think, because of our attitude that we can do whatever we want and we will be fine. And there was a time, of course, when we had just a couple of million people on Earth, where that was the case, because Earth was so vast and so big and right. so rich. We could do whatever we want. We could burn down entire forests. Clear cut the forest. We and would move be on. fine. Yeah, but yeah. we're not on that Earth anymore. We live now with what is it, eight billion people here, and so uh, that whole attitude that we are separate from nature, which I fight uh, basically on the basis of comparing behavior of humans and other species, but that whole fight is is also present here in this particular climate crisis. It's interesting how science kind of came full circle in that sense where. You know, at one point, the idea of the connection between humans and nature could be this sort of vague metaphysical pagan mm -hmm. concept or something from the perspective of science and post-enlightenment yeah. reason. And where now we understand things about biomes and this interconnectedness of things on a much deeper mm -hmm. level and mm -hmm. through your work yeah, yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, everything in nature is connected. Everything in your body is connected, so that's the microbiome and so on. But everything in nature is connected, and so the idea that we can harm the atmosphere and we will be fine is an illusion. And unfortunately, we have a lot of people in society today who try to deny the science or try to go against the science. I'm not sure that we scientists have been very forceful politically to make the point that we should listen to science, but um, people try to ignore it. The vaccine movement is another thing yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where we try to ignore science. In Europe, we have the, the movement against genetically manipulated foods, which is, I think, an anti-science movement. And so we have all these anti-science movements. And we scientists, we, we need maybe to make a stronger point that we work on the basis of evidence. Well, and I mean, it feels like some of the reason for the anti-science movement, the backlash in part, aside from just ignorance mm -hmm. and lack of reason and whatever, is some of this arrogance and myopia that you talk about science having mm -hmm. at different times in history, you know, treating yeah. animals as instruments, you know, that it feels like it created a split due in part to people's stupidity, due in part to science's stupidity yeah, yeah, yeah. at different yeah, times. Yeah, sometimes science is used in that regard. So, for example, we talked about behaviorism and their tendency to depict animals as machines, stimulus response machines. That was also a very convenient type of of thinking in the sense if you if you want to exploit animals in, in for example in the agricultural industry it's very convenient to say that they are like machines because then we can basically do whatever we want mm. and i think we have reached now the point and my work is sort of gearing towards this more moral perspective where we say well if animals are thinking and feeling beings maybe we cannot do everything we want to do and maybe we should start to, to treat them better and so that's another implication uh, that science now has yeah when i talked to dawkins his thing was that from the perspective of the future, even consuming animals as we do mm -hmm. may look the way that slavery yeah. does to us now, certainly the way that we treat animals. The cycle of life, I don't necessarily object to that, is that we eat animals, even though ideally speaking, I would say we should have artificial meats. That time is going to come. The time is going to come that we produce artificial meats. It's probably going to be more efficient than producing real animals. And we can probably do it that is just as good as, as real meat. And then you mean uh, not just plant-based meats, but also like stem cell-based yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that we grow meat basically yeah. in laboratories. But in the meantime, until we have reached that point, my ideal would be that we cut the meat consumption in half 
We can easily do that without negative repercussions anywhere. We cut it in half and we treat the animals that we do eat in a much better way, better quality also. Um, because I, I think we cannot just go on the way we do at the moment. Yeah, without mm -hmm. a doubt, you would agree that the factory farming situation is an unmitigated disaster for both animals and the planet. Ecologically, <laughs> of course, a, a big problem. But I'm not even speaking ecologically. I'm just speaking from the moral perspective of animal welfare, so to speak. This is going out on a speculative limb, but mm -hmm. based on your observations of both chimps and monkeys and humans, what chance do you think we have as a species of kind of getting it together socially to solve problems like this, to avert the sorts of disasters that oh, he's Oh, I think it's going to happen because I think the younger generation, you said you had a son of 11. I think the kids are really getting interested in this topic and they have the future. They know they have to gonna live through this disaster that we are creating at the moment. I am 70 years old. For me, it doesn't matter that much, but if I had kids, I would also worry about it. You know that, that there's a whole movement of young children who is leaving school on certain days yes, to yes. protest. Young, and, and young Swedish girl that's yeah, been nominated for the Nobel Peace yeah, Prize. Yeah, and then, and then, of course, in Holland, I saw we had that movement also that some older male politicians were chiding the children that they should never leave school and so on. <laughs> but the kids think about their future more than these guys are doing. Uh. And so uh, I think the younger generation, uh, I hope they're going to take care of this problem by kicking all, out all the old guys who say that they shouldn't. <laughs> the book is called Mama's Last Hug. And I'm interested both in that hug and also in the way you describe Mama and mm -hmm. her personality yeah, and the yeah. complexity of her personality. Yeah, the reason I chose that moment was not just because it was on video. So I described that moment that my old professor, who, who was about 80 years old, uh, went into a cage with Mama, the chimpanzee, the alpha female of a large colony that I had worked with. And so uh, he went in to say goodbye because he was dying. And we never go in with an adult chimp. That's Far too dangerous but in this case he knew her for a long time and in addition she was dying and so he went in and she embraced him and many people have seen the video of it and it was shown on dutch tv national tv many people have cried and i can fully understand that people were emotionally affected i was very emotionally affected by the video but what surprised me is how surprised people were that her facial expressions and her sounds that she produced and her gestures were so human-like. So people commented, all people commented about she was so human-like. And that surprised me because I thought we had agreed all that chimpanzees <laughs> are our closest relatives, which means that everything they do is very human-like automatically. So I felt I needed to take that moment to explain again that the facial expressions of chimpanzees and the gestures that they make are almost identical to ours. And, and that it's very easy for us to read the body language of a chimpanzee because the chimpanzee is like us. It's much harder to read the body language of an elephant or of a fish, but for a chimpanzee, it's extremely easy for us. But we don't, yeah. you know, strangely, we go to the, we, people go to the zoo, I guess because we have this framework in our mind or whatever. Generally speaking, people don't know what they're looking at, you know? They go no, and it's like, look at them running around. And, and that is because like. people are indoctrinated that we are different. <laughs> yeah. So it, we did one-time research at the zoo. We took data standing among the public about what they say about animals and how they react to the chimpanzees. And what we found is that the kids, they see everything that the chimps do and they interpret it correctly. So if the chimps are fighting, the kids are worried and they say they're fighting. Or if the chimps are playing and tickling, they say, oh, they're playing. Uh, the parents are the ones who, who laugh 
about everything that the chimps do and they may be in the middle of the most fierce fight and they keep laughing and they think chimpanzees are so funny. And I think what is happening there is they have been indoctrinated that we humans, we are different and not only different, we are superior to these animals. And so you can laugh about all the stupid things that they do. You don't need to watch because it's always funny what they do. And so I always find that interesting is that young kids especially they don't make a sharp distinction between humans and animals. For them, animals are mm. family members and the animals that they have at home, at least. And they observe animals and they connect with them at a sort of intuitive basis. But then at some point, probably during adolescence, we get this indoctrination that we humans are something else than animals. And there's about half the population goes with that. And so <laughs> half the population sees humans as superior beings. And the other half of the population, and those are the people that I draw to my lectures, the other half of the population feels the connection and is very connected with animals and likes to hear about animals and respects them uh, usually. And so you have sort of two kinds of people in that regard. I don't know how people end up in the two camps, but, <laughs> right, but we right. have two, two schools of people, so to speak. And I think you would argue, and I think this is an important point of your book, that to the extent that you are indoctrinated like that, it blinds you to human behavior as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it does because th that whole connection between mind and body is then also, of course, uh, disturbed by it. Franz de Waal, I want to thank you for spending this time on Think Again. It's been great speaking with thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Hey, so that's it for this week's episode. Next week, we continue the animal hijinks with documentary filmmaker Ross Kaufman and his film Tigerland about the inspiring lengths some people will go to to protect wild tigers from extinction. If you want to get in touch with me, please come visit my website, jasongotts.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com. You can send me an email, learn more than you ever wanted to know about me, and sign up for my very infrequent emails out to the world. I'll be back next week with another surprising conversation, and I hope you can join me. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.